How's everybody today? This is my first time to preach in front of you, and I am absolutely thrilled. I've been to your church a number of times. You guys have had a different events and things, and I've always been here, but I've never been on stage. How different it looks from here. This is great. So we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 9 today. If you want to go ahead and turn there. 1 Samuel chapter 9. I'm going to tell you, this is kind of a, this is a difficult chapter to kind of get your head around, but it's here for a reason, and so we're going to study it today. Um, I want to kind of catch you up a little bit, uh, give you a little, back, a little bit of background as you're turning there, though. Um, anytime that you read the books of Samuel, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, they're primarily dealing with uh, the question of leadership for God's people. It started with Eli, then it moved to Samuel, then Saul and David and Solomon, as you kind of work your way through both of those books. Where we're at today in the story is, the, is it during the reign of Samuel. Samuel is the main prophet uh, over all of Israel. And the elders of Israel have now come to him and demanded, hey, we want a king like, we want to look like all of the other nations. In fact, in 1 Samuel 8, they say that uh, there shall be a king over us that we may, may be like all of the other nations. Okay? Trouble is, they weren't like all the other nations. In fact, Samuel tells them, okay, if you go down this path, you just need to know that this, this guy is going to basically take all that you own, and he's going to reduce you to the status of slaves. They didn't care. They had already rejected God as their king. This is what they want. And so God tells Samuel to give them a king. What we're going to see today, though, is God providing Saul in that position in a way to show them the error of their ways in demanding to be like all of the other nations. Where we're at in the story, the Philistines have sort of been subdued for a while, but now they're starting to ramp up their attacks of the Israelites. Attacks are starting to happen. They're starting to sort of take a, and subdue a lot of the, um, the border towns and whatnot around Israel. <clears throat> and so this is an imminent threat. The elders, they're looking for somebody to lead them into battle against the Philistines, just like all of the other nations. They want that sort of figurehead to kind of rally behind so that we look like everybody else. So you could say that the nation was on edge trying to figure out who their next leader was going to be. Some of you are awake this morning. The nation was on edge trying to figure out who their next leader is going to be. Oh, if only God would give us something from his scripture that might be relevant to our day today. Wouldn't that be fun? Wouldn't that be nice? Pray with me. Father, I just thank you that your, your name is being glorified through literally millions of people, hundreds of millions of people around this world on this day. I thank you for the oneness that we have in Christ. I thank you for this, this body of believers, this faithful remnant that you have out here, one of the oldest churches in all of Texas that still continues to praise your name week after week. I thank you for Andy and the pastor that he is leading this, this flock in the way that he does. So now, Father, as we dig into your word, I do pray that you would give us eyes to see and you would give us ears to hear fairly difficult and complicated things. 
I pray that you would work through that and help us to know who you are and to elevate you as, as a result of reading this today. We pray this honestly in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so we are in 1 Samuel chapter 9. Read with me verses 1 and 2. It says, There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Becherath, son of Alphia. I get bonus points for pronouncing these right, by the way. We're assuming they're correct. A Benjaminite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. So right out of the gate, we see Samuel's, or we see Saul's lineage. What do we know about Kish, Abiel, Zeror, Becherath, and Alphea? Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. This was not a distinguished family line, uh, family tree in the Bible. Now, Saul is a Benjaminite, which means he is from the smallest of all of the tribes in, uh, in Israel. Smallest of all the tribes had the least amount of influence over any tribes. Question, why were the Benjaminites the smallest tribe? I'm going to let you look up that one on your own, okay? Because if you read it towards the end of Judges, it explains in very graphic detail why they were the smallest tribe. Uh, they have a very notorious history, to say the least. And so that history and those events that preceded that, that's still fresh on the national conscience as well, which makes the fact that Saul is going to be their next king even more dramatic. It sort of adds to the whole drama of the entire story. Saul's name means dedicated or asked for, which is ironic because he is exactly the kind of king that the elders were asking for. Taller than everybody else, good-looking guy, okay? He had the mojo that everybody in Israel was looking for in a king, okay? Um, the world admires someone who acts and looks like a leader, do they not? They do. They do. Saul would have won the Mr. Israel contest where there had been one, okay? He was it. He was it, okay? Um, here's a fun fact, though. Saul is the only Israelite mentioned in Scripture that is identified and, and described for his great height. He's the only one. In case you have a Bible trivia game or whatever, I'm just giving you a freebie now. Normally, physical stature was always a mark of Israel's enemies. But the writer of Samuel wants us to know this is, these, are, these were the defining characteristics of Saul. Let's continue in verse 3. Now, the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, Take one of the young men with you and arise. Go and look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim. He passed through the land of Shalisha. But they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Shalim, and they were not there. Then they passed through the land of Benjamin, but did not find them. When they came to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant, who was with them, Come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. But he said to him, Behold, there is a man of God in this city, and he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. So now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way that we should go. And then Saul said to his servant, 
But if we go, what can we bring the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone, and there is no present to bring to the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered Saul again, Here, I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. So, this story starts out with a very common occurrence in an agrarian world. The donkeys have gotten loose out of the pen. Pretty normal. Saul and his servant have been tasked with finding them. So they go on a three-day journey through these different lands looking for these donkeys, and they never find them. But they find themselves in the land of Zuf, which just so happens to be the home of the prophet Samuel. Now, it's easy for us, especially in the 21st century, to beat up on Saul. He gives a lot of of ammunition to be able to do that. But I want to highlight a few positives about his leadership this morning. Number one, we do show him showing respect and concern for his father in verse 5. That's a good thing. That's a good thing I want to highlight. Second, when his servant suggests that they consult with a man of God in this city, Saul insists that they only appear if they have an appropriate gift to give to him. Now, in this day, uh, this is the kind of thing that was expected in Israel's social world, okay? Uh, When someone appeared unannounced before a person of honor and respect, it was... It was a good thing to give to them, uh, to give them some sort of a, a tribute and whatnot. Now, what we don't understand is why Saul, okay, whose father was wealthy, had nothing at all with him and had to rely on his servant to fork over something of value to be able to give to this guy. We're not told that, but it's an interesting point that he was completely unprepared for that. Um, actually, you could even argue that the fact that Saul and his servant came to inquire of God's prophet, sets them apart from even some of Israel's other leaders. We've already talked about the elders and how they wanted a king, not God. They wanted a king and they wanted to look like all of the other nations. They didn't consult the Lord. They acted accordingly. If you go just a little bit further back in 1 Samuel, you'll also see a story of other leaders of Israel who thought it would be a good idea to take the Ark of the Covenant to the battlefield as sort of a good luck charm in fighting the Philistines. That went horrifically wrong. That was an absolute epic fail at every, <laughs> in every way. But it's a good reminder for each of us this morning to understand and know this fact, that there is absolutely nothing, nothing going on in our lives that's so trivial that God does not invite and us to seek him and to seek his counsel through prayer and study of his word. Nothing too trivial. He wants us to do this. Proverbs 3 tells us, in all of your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. This is a truth that we hold on to. Just a good reminder. But the whole hard fact is, Saul, he really was not a spiritual leader not a spiritual leader, for something that this chapter and even chapter 10 highlight very, very clearly. Saul was not the leader. He was not a spiritual leader. Most of Israel's famed leaders had been shepherds. You look at Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, all of them had this, this background of being a shepherd. And Saul, who's... Well, we'll, we'll say his incompetence, I guess, in not finding the donkeys 
that he went searching for made their way home back anyway. They made their own way back without his help um, is unflattering to say the least. It's unflattering. It's an important, one of the most important qualifications of a spiritual leader is faithfulness in watching over God's flock. This is something that we don't see was that something that's, that Saul did not really excel in in this area, if that makes sense. In addition, there are other scholars that believe that Saul's insistence or his concern over a gift for the man of God wasn't tethered to this social that was, that was normal back during the day. But it was the, based on the belief that, that, that God's servants could actually be hired by cash to do whatever they want. That could be true. Okay. Maybe they're just being snarky. I, I don't know. What I do know, though, is even today, worldly people sometimes have this same attitude when it comes to pastors and when it comes to the church. Do they not? So it's at least possible that Saul could have been, this could have been his mindset. But I want you to notice real quick that it, although Saul was in charge of this donkey expedition, it was actually his servant who was leading, and Saul followed. Saul followed. It was a servant who insisted that they inquire of the man of God. Servant knew about this prophet. Verse 6, he, he describes Samuel as a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. Just a few chapters earlier in 1 Samuel 4, it says that all of Israel from Dan to Beersheba, so the extreme north of Israel to the extreme south, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And that the word of Samuel came to all of Israel. Everybody, this was the Billy Graham of the day. Everybody knows who this guy is across the board. Everybody except for, that's right, who seems oblivious for some reason to who this even is. We don't know why. The servant knows the servant is leading. Saul does not know. In fact, later on, when he becomes king, Saul is going to frequently be influenced by the counsel of others rather than charting a course based on his own convictions and his own faith. We recognize Saul's today, don't we? Saul is among us as the politician who masters the art of public speaking very eloquently and yet, never really trails the truth. Lots and lots of, of ambitions, but very few convictions. Very few convictions. They're led by the winds of changing fashion. This way or that. Um, this is the type of king that the Israelites demanded. This is who they wanted. This, this is what the rest of the other nations experienced. And in a corrupt world like we live in today, Saul is the kind of man who often comes to power, unfortunately. It's just, it just, it is the way it is. Continue with me in verse 11. As they went up the hill to the city, they met young women coming out to draw the water. It said to them, is the seer here? They answered, he is. Behold, he is just ahead of you. Hurry, he has come just now to the city because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. As soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat until he comes, since he must bless the sacrifice. 
Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now go up, for you will meet him immediately. So they went up to the city, and as they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. I want to pause for a moment, and I want us to sort of back out and sort of take a macro view of this chapter. Because this chapter is highlighting God's providential control over the small affairs of our lives according to his sovereign will. This is a difficult subject to get your head around, okay? We're going to do our best today. Saul's will was fully engaged in finding these donkeys, as it should be, as it should be, okay? Yet it is God's unfolding plan that directs the paths of men in ways that are completely unforeseen by them. What did we just read about Jesus washing the feet of Peter? He says, you do not yet understand what I am doing. But one day you're going to understand this. Jesus was preparing something unforeseen by Peter and the apostles. Same concept. Same concept. We can see from this text that God has clearly ordained every detail of this journey. Every bit. Even having Saul and his servant choose to go up to the gate on their own that just so providentially happened to intersect with Samuel coming out of the gate at the exact same time. And I mention that for this reason. God's sovereignty over even the smallest details of our lives, it really does not conflict with human will and our free will and the full expression <clears throat> excuse me, of human choice. Again, these are difficult things for us to really get our head around fully, and that's okay. It really is. But these things seem like complete polar opposites when we think about them. How can you have this at the same time? Completely contradictory. But they're really not. They're really not. Through the small affairs of human lives, God fulfills his covenant promises and his purposes. God promised to provide Israel with a king, and he did so by his appointed means and in his way. The, thing, the problem is, is that God's people, we rarely know what God is up to, okay, and how he intends to use the simple events of our lives for something greater or to the, the great things of God, how they're going to make how he's going to make things in our small, these small affairs of our lives, how he's going to put this together into something magnificent. It's frustrating because we can't see ahead. We, we don't know how, how, how to maneuver in this. I'll admit, it is frustrating, okay? But here's the truth. For those of us who are in Christ, we know that for those that love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purposes, Romans 8, 28. This is an absolute bedrock truth that we hold on to, no matter what. It's there for us. So <clears throat> I recognize how difficult these subjects are, trying to get your head around it. It's a, it's a, it's a difficult chapter. And so I try to, to, in my mind, try to reconcile these things by making little illustrations. They help me at least. So this is not a perfect illustration, but this is free, 
okay? Think of a bubble, all right? You and I live in the bubble. We are making choices. We go this way. We go that. We do whatever we want. We make these choices inside this bubble. And yes, choices have consequences for us inside this bubble in every way. But even though we're making choices freely inside this bubble, God holds the bubble in his hand. And God moves that bubble into the direction and the paths that he alone understands and he alone knows. Not a perfect illustration, but for me it's incredibly comforting to think about this. Because I realize that I'm probably the only person in this room that makes wrong choices sometimes. Don't laugh at me. I, I really am trying to do better. I promise. I know it's just me, okay? But it's, it's incredibly, it's comforting for me to know that <clears throat> because I am in Christ, I can make wrong choices. And it's never going to thwart the plan of God for my life ultimately. Does that make sense? That is incredibly comforting to me. My wrong choices are going to have consequences for me, but directionally where I'm headed, it's not going to affect that. And I just, that's, I love that. So you and I were given the choice two weeks ago to make a, a cast a vote to whichever candidate that we thought would be the best. And I hope you did that. I hope you did that. God did not interfere with our free will. He allows us to choose whoever we want in every way. And that's a good thing. But ultimately, ultimately, he's going to place the ruler for such a time as, as this, that he has chosen to rule our nation. Could be President Trump. It could be Joe Biden. We don't yet know. There's tension in that. We like to know. We like to think that we're in control of our lives. Friends, as Christians, though, we have to be able to rest in the truths of this and know that somehow, even if it gets difficult for us as a church, and it might, it truly might, that somehow this is for our good ultimately. Again, hard to wrap your, man, your mind around this. Hard to wrap your mind around it. Because we can't see his plans ahead of time. We can't see it. There's tension there. That's frustrating. Again, we like to be in control of our lives, or we like to think we are anyway, Okay? There's tension there, but we must trust in his character and what he has revealed about himself and the truths that he has revealed. How about these banners? You get to see these every single week, these truths. Do you truly believe them? Do you truly believe them? These are the things that, these are the things that we hold on to, irrespective of all the things that are circling on around our nation and around our lives. These are the things that we hold on to. I could tell you story after story after story of God's providence in my life. The fact that you are saved, the fact that you have come to faith, God has providentially, in your unique story, brought you to this position. We see this, we just don't think about it a lot, but this idea of God's providence is, is, is pervasive throughout Scripture, even in the midst of difficult times. Look at the Israelites they were enslaved for 400 years in Egypt. 400 years. And yet, all that time, God was preparing something in the background, working out something. 
preparing them for this sweeping, dramatic rescue that would lead them into the promised land. Great story. In fact, if you dig down a little further into Scripture, you'll also see that, that the other nations that were around them, not the Israelites, but the other nations, they actually feared the Israelites. They feared the Israelites. You know why? Because they had heard the story about how their God had destroyed the mighty Egyptian army in a supernatural way. And they wondered if they were next. They were afraid. But even in that, even in that, God was working out the details for all of the individuals from those other nations who would one day come and serve the one true God. I give you Rahab as an example. Someone who is outside of Egypt. God is preparing that for those people. God's providence. Um, we could look at uh, um, Ruth and Naomi on the, on the verge of starvation in Moab. God moves them from them into Egypt to a field that just so happened to be run by the kinsman redeemer, Boaz. And of course, we know that it's from that family line that we get David and ultimately the Messiah, God's providence. He's working these things out. Esther, Esther is, you know, she becomes the Persian king's wife just in time to save her people from being ethnically cleansed by Haman, the madman. All of these things, God's working out over and over and over providentially. More recent history, we look at the nations of Iran and Afghanistan who have suffered an incredible amount of pain and anguish and suffering from evil, evil Islamic governments and um, those trying to overthrow the governments and things like the Taliban and whatnot. They have truly suffered for a long time. And yet, Iran and Afghanistan, you may or may not know this, they actually comprise the fastest growing church planting movement in the world right now. Were you aware of that? How Nobody could have predicted this. Nobody could have predicted this. And yet, God had been preparing them, even in their misery, preparing them for something magnificent. The point is this. When events in our lives leave us with a bleak outcome, and we just don't, we can't see how this is going to be able to be for our good, we have to just stop and trust that God is working out the details known only by him for our good. And we, our duty is to remain faithful and to trust in his character, that he has revealed to us in scripture, that he has revealed to us personally in our own lives. And the truth of scripture, the truth of scripture that guide our lives. This is what's gonna get us through always. So I hope that is encouraging to you. So let's continue in verse 15. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, tomorrow about this time I'll send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. And Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me, where is the house of the seer? See, he still doesn't know who he is. Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. 
Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me, and in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. We'll stop there. So before Samuel, or sorry, before Saul in his sermon arrives in the city, God has already revealed to Samuel who the, uh, the identity of Saul. So have a look at 17. It says, when Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, here is the man of whom I spoke to you. It is he who shall restrain my people. That's a curious verse or a wording there. It's he who's going to restrain my people. The Hebrew word for restrain here is a, is a word called yazar. Yazar. Now, I don't know what translation you're actually reading right now, but some of the translations might actually render this as saying that Saul will rule God's people. Yours might say that. Mine doesn't. But that's not really accurate what that word means because that word is a negative word in Hebrew. It's negative, and it, it implies a, a hindrance of sorts. So the Lord had determined to use Saul's career as a means of punishing the nation. So his, the policies that Saul would enact when he became king are going to hinder the welfare of the nation, and they're going to act as a barrier to separating them from God's best for them. Of course, we see this later on. By the time that Saul actually dies in battle, Israel was in no better condition than when he had actually arrived. That's the truth. And we don't have time to read everything else in this chapter, so let me just try to summarize it for you, uh, the rest of chapter 9. Saul, I mean, Samuel has spent an inordinate amount of time and effort trying to show honor to Saul as Israel's first king and trying to prepare him for what he's about to walk into in every way. So if you move into chapter 10 we see that Samuel anoints Saul with oil. He then leaves from there and gathers all the people together to cast lots to determine who the next king is. Now, you and I know, because we have scripture, and Samuel and and God knows that it's going to be Saul because this has been providentially put together and it's already been determined. It's ordained by God. So the lots that he casts first land on the tribe of Benjamin which would have been sent shockwaves around everybody. Again, they're the smallest tribe with the least amount of influence. They've lasted again, boom, 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 over and over and over until it's undeniable that Saul is going to be the next king. So everybody decides and they learn, okay, it's going to be Saul, son of Kish. Where is Saul, son of Kish, when that die lands on him? Turn ahead, if you don't mind, to chapter 10, verse 22. Chapter 10, verse 22. So they inquired again of the Lord, is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Oops. So the die lands on Saul. Everybody knows it's looking, but Saul is nowhere to be found. He's hiding in the baggage. He's not a spiritual leader. This is not an ideal start for Israel's first king. It's just not. And yet, somehow, in God's providence, this was the man whom he chose to lead Israel for this time period. 
to accomplish his purposes. I read a story the other day. I'm going to share it with you if it's okay. Um, called God is in the Subways. And you may, have, you may have even read this before at some point. 1948 in Reader's Digest, a story appeared about a man by the name of Marcel Sternberger, a Hungarian immigrant. He was in New York City, and he got on the subway headed to work one morning. He found himself sitting next to a man named Bella Paskin, another Hungarian who was reading a Hungarian newspaper, which Marcel immediately identifies. And he leans over to Bella and asks him in Hungarian language, he says, I hope you don't mind me reading over your shoulder. Well, they got into a conversation. And it turns out that Bella Paskin had actually come to New York City after the war. The Russians had deported him from his town Deborah Chen in Hungary. And he'd been taken to the Ukraine by the Russians to bury dead German soldiers. When he finally came back home to Deborah Chen in Hungary, he found his home occupied by strangers. His family had died, taken by train to Auschwitz, and presumably had been killed. And so he immediately fled and found his way to New York City. Now, Marcel Sternberger, just a few weeks before, had met a Hungarian woman by the name of Maria. Maria Paskin. You know where this is going. He said to Bella on the train, what was your wife's name? Maria, he said. They stopped at the next station, and Marcel says, come with me, I need to make a phone call. He'd taken down the woman's number, and he calls her, and he says, hey, I met you a few weeks ago, and she said, yes, I remember. Can you tell me the street and the number that you lived in Deborah Chen? She told him. He turned to Bella. He asked, what was the street that you lived on, and what was the house number? You guessed it. It was the same house. He hands Bella the phone and says, your wife wants to talk to you. Coincidence? No. No. Just another mundane day of getting on the subway, the daily grind of going to, going to work that changed someone's life forever. Forever. Saul searching for donkeys they escaped from the pen. It's a pretty mundane story. But he had no idea of the adventure that he was about to embark upon. God works mightily in the mundane stories of our lives. He is working in the, just the, the average, the ordinary, is where God is. Um, there's a, there's, there's a tendency, I think, to, sometimes to think that God is only guiding us in the big decisions of life. Who we're going to marry, um, what house we're going to buy, what job we're looking for, whether we should live in Cleveland or out in Lake Jackson, those kind of things, okay? And for sure, just so we're clear, he is in those as well, in every way. But friends, God is providentially working in every decision, every circumstance, every event of our lives for our good even if we can't see it yet. Saul becomes Israel's king. 20-something, tall, handsome, and utterly unprepared for the task in front of him in every way. But you see, he, he, couldn't, he couldn't find his donkeys. It's a bad thing. He couldn't find the donkeys. But there is going to be a coming king after him who will ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. He'll ride on a donkey. Saul is going to be an unmitigated failure for the people of Israel. And that was God's plan, to help them understand the error 
of trying to look like and be like all of the other nations. God arranged this. We put our faith and our trust in kings or in presidents. Every time, guys, every time, we're going to be disappointed because our hope is to be found in none other than the Prince of Peace, and that is our Lord Jesus Christ only. He is the one, he is our deliverer, he is, he is our redeemer, he is, he is everything. These people, the Israelites, they wanted to be just like the other nations. But this coming king, when he gets here, he's gonna say, I am not of this world because he was sinless, spotless, undefiled in every possible way. So already as we read 1 Samuel 9, we can see that the story of Saul is providentially paving the way for the only true savior and deliverer of his people. And that's our Lord Jesus. So, Oakshade, I just, don't put our trust in, in, in princes, in kings, or in presidents. Our trust is in Christ alone. The Lord, our rock. Our refuge in times of strength. The things that you get to see every single day. These truths have not changed. In this polarized environment that we find ourselves living in right now, and it is bad. We need to, the, the task of the church, it really needs to be to sort of back up, put our minds on things above, and to stick to what we know, the truths that we know, the God that we know. Don't trust in kings and don't trust in presidents. Trust in Christ alone and the character that he has revealed to each one of us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And these are, these are difficult things to wrap our minds around, to think that even, in, even at this time right now, that the church is kind of biting their fingernails, wondering what's going to happen. Are things going to get tougher for us here in this country? And it's possible that it could. It could. But the truths of who you are, they never change. They never change whether we're in America, whether we're in Iran, or some other country that has experienced persecution for a while. All through that, Father, you are working out the details for our good. I just pray that we would remain faithful, not get sucked into all the name-calling and just the negativity that's going on right now in our country. But we as a church would solidify that we would um, come around each other, Father, and, and would become even more united than ever before in the truths of who you are and the gospel that you've given us that has changed every one of our lives. And that dying world out there, casting stones, burning things down, they need to hear it. So, Father, give us strength, give us patience, and give us a sense of understanding your providence all throughout Scripture and in our lives. We pray this honestly from the heart, in Christ's name, amen.